Hello and welcome to the Region Agri podcast, the go-to place to hear everything about regenerative agriculture. Region Agri is an initiative supporting farms, agribusinesses and the supply chain in their transition to regenerative approaches. We do this globally with the aim of securing the health of the land and the wealth of those who live on it. For more information about our initiative and to find out how we can help you on your regenerative journey, visit regenagri.org. I'm your host, Rose Riley, and once again, I'm excited to bring you the latest developments on the global phenomenon that is regenerative agriculture. For this episode, we're exploring how regenerative farming techniques can make land more resilient to the extreme weather conditions caused by climate change. I'm joined today by Nathan Nelson, who manages Deepdale Farm on the North Norfolk coast. Following flooding and soil erosion issues in the late 2010s, the farm took a new direction and adopted regenerative farming methods. They have also begun the process of organic conversion. We are also joined by Josiah Meldrum, co-founder of Hodmedods, a specialist supplier of British-grown pulses and grains. Hodmedods emerged from a project looking at resilience to climate change and how diverse rotations with some unusual crops or crop varieties can support food production in an increasingly unpredictable climate. Thank you, Nathan and Josiah, for joining me today. I'm looking forward to hearing more from both of you on how food systems can become more resilient in the face of a changing climate. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, Rose. Thanks for inviting us along. Thanks for coming, guys. So I think to start off with, it'd be really great to get a bit of a background on both Deepdale Farm and on Hobmidods. So um, Nathan, if we start with you, could you give us a little bit of an overview of the farm um, and particularly what prompted you to transition to regenerative farming methods? Well, we're located on the North Norfolk coast at um, Burnham Deepdale. We're in already one of the uh, sort of lowest areas of average rainfall in the UK. We're in a very beautiful spot where we're about a kilometre from the sea. We've got incredible views up and down the coast. Deepdale is an arable farm. We've been growing arable crops. There's been no livestock really on the farm for sort of quite some time. And certainly for the last few years, there was a rotation on the farm, which was sort of quite an intensive rotation with sort of quite hungry crops and uh, management of those crops, which was somewhat sort of detrimental to soil health and soil quality. So for the last few years, there's been a rotation which has been focused on winter wheat, potatoes, carrots and maize. And certainly potatoes, carrots and maize are all crops which are sort of, you know, they're not fantastic for soil quality if they're not managed properly if, or if they're not sort of grown as part of a, of a sort of a good wide rotation. I started as estate manager on the farm at the beginning of 2020. Um, about t- day two in the job, I was in chest waders in a sediment trap with my arm down a hole trying to sort of figure out why there was a blockage in a sediment trap, which was capturing water and soil uh, flowing off a field at quite a rate, quite an alarming rate. And on about week one or two into the job, um, we found that one of our fields, which had been cultivated in the wrong direction and which was sown with winter wheat, was essentially sending water plummeting down the hill. We've got a hill which goes, you know, our farm goes from practically sea level down on some reclaimed marshland up to about 65 metres. And in some very, very heavy rain in the January, February, we found that rainfall was coming down wheelings and washing off the fields and essentially starting to sort of carve out channels and essentially was carrying tonnes of soil with it. So quite an alarming sight, fairly new in the job to see that essentially we've managed to put about six inches of soil and water into the cellar of a neighbor's house and most of the downstairs of her house. And um, then the soil and the water continued on into the village and we even managed to flood the cellar of the village church. 
And we'd actually already started some remediation to try and prevent this, but we were sort of essentially, we had the local internal drainage board were digging defenses, um, sort of ditches and a bund to try and prevent this from happening. But we were essentially trying to sort of, it was a little bit like the sort of the, the boy with his thumb in the dike, uh, trying to prevent all this sort of disaster happening in front of our eyes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's where we found ourselves. And it was really, it was really off the back of a, rotation which was sort of quite extractive in nature and where there wasn't organic matter being put back and soil was not being allowed to recover over winters and we didn't have any sort of cover for the soil when at precisely the times when we needed it which is in these periods of extremely heavy rainfall. Wow so a, a, a pretty strong incentive to start changing how the farm was managed thank you for that context there and Josiah could you give us a little bit of a background on on Hodmidods and how your ethos really fits in with the regenerative movement and climate resilient agriculture? Yeah, I mean, we started doing this really uh, 15 or 20 years ago, Nick, William and I, as part of a non-governmental organisation called East Anglia Food Link, um, which is looking to bring closer connection between people and communities and the food that they eat. And really seeing food as a political act with a small p, this idea that we all eat three times a day and that that's quite a powerful, um, a powerful lever for change in our communities and in the wider environment. And we're very interested in the, the impact of the food system, the, the, the inequality, but also the environmental degradation that's being driven by industrial agriculture in, in Western Europe and in North America over the last 70 or 80 years. You know, it's, it's, it's quite striking that five, around 5% five of global man-made carbon emissions come from the, the production of nitrogen fertilizer from natural gases via the Harbour Bosch process. And, uh, and that's you know, been, been very liberally applied to the land. We need to move away from those kind of systems. And in around 2007 or 2008, uh, East Anglia Food Link was approached by a community group called Transition Norwich. They were part of this global movement of communities that are looking to methods and ways in which they could reduce their impact on the environment, but also sort of adaptive approaches to climate change. You know, what can we do to lessen climate impact? And how can we do that in a positive and, and fun and optimistic way that brings people together? And they asked us to produce a report for them. Um, could a city the size of Norwich feed itself from its hinterland, from the land around it? And if so, how much land would it need? And would we need to change diets and, and land use and methods of farming? And we did that report. We looked at various different models, a sort of business as usual approach, we looked at a, a, a much reduced neat approach and a, and a vegan approach and how they'd affect land use and nutrient cycling and what the existing land use types were. And we quickly realised that they, they could do that. They could massively reduce their synthetic inputs, uh, nitrogen and other fertilisers, but also pesticide use. But there would need to be really significant changes in diet and we would really have to change rotations. And that a really core cool part of that was going to be introducing more leguminous crops. Those are crops from a species of plant that do that amazing thing of fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere with rhizobium in the soil and creating their own fertilizer effectively. And as a byproduct of that, creating protein in their seeds that we can then eat. So we began thinking about how do we encourage farmers to introduce more of these things into their rotations? How do we encourage people in Norwich to actually eat more beans and peas? The interesting thing about the UK is that we are per capita probably the lowest consumer, one of the lowest consumers of pulses, the dried seeds of, of leguminous crops in the world. 
And uh, the only kind of world-beating statistic we have, and we all know how we like world-beating statistics, is that we eat more baked beans per capita than anyone else. And of course, baked <laughs> beans are, you know, they're imported ingredients. They're beans from, from you know, the Great Lakes region of North America and imported tomatoes. And yet they're, they're a real part of our food culture. So we started to look at what was being grown locally. And we realised that, that Britain, particularly our part of the UK, is really well-placed to grow peas and to grow something that we call a fava bean, which is really a small, broad bean. And we, we, we began by, by asking people in Norwich if they prepared to eat those, realising that, in fact, fava beans that appear to be an animal feed are actually exported in huge quantities to other parts of the world from the UK for human consumption, which is quite a revelation for us. So North Africa and the Middle East consume about a quarter of a million tonnes of British-grown beans every year, and we don't eat them at all, or we weren't eating them at all. Historically, they've been quite widely eaten, but um, as we got rich as a nation about 400 years ago, they just completely dropped out of our diets. So, so we began really with something called the Great British Beans Project, where we put beans into little packets. We got them out into community groups, put them into box schemes, we got them into shops, and we put a little postage paid um, postcard into every single pack. And we asked people what they thought. Would you eat them again? Did you enjoy them? Did you know we grew them here? And we had an incredible response, a really positive response. People were absolutely fascinated that here was this food being grown all around Norwich, but not being eaten. And in 2012, when that sort of work with the Norwich community ended, we set up a small community-supported agriculture project feeding 150 families on nine acres. We set up a milling project producing a Norwich loaf and working with a local baker to, to make bread with flour and grain grown on the edge of the city which was not happening anymore and we were kind of left with the beans project and we founded uh, Hodmadod in order to continue that work and since then we've we've developed a, a whole network of farmers some of whom are growing directly for us some of whom like like Nathan and Deepdale are working towards the point where they'll be producing crops for us and we began to realise as well that beans should be a central part of the rotation. They're currently seen as a break crop or, you know, something that farmers have to grow in order to manage a sustainable rotation. But they're not seen as a central crop. And if we put them in the middle of the rotation and then fit the cereals and the other crops around it, we're really beginning to make some progress with the, with the attention that's needed to grow good quality uh, beans, peas, but now lentils, chickpeas and a whole host of other crops. So we've moved from just thinking about pulses to now thinking about a, an agroecological rotation that brings return to the farm both economically and ecologically, and that includes cereals and things. Thank you. You've both touched on this a little bit already in your introductions, but I'm interested in understanding from both of your perspectives how you see climate change really affecting the reality of agricultural production on the ground, whether that is, you know, locally to you in the Norwich area or, or, or more further afield. Well, it's already affecting us, really. I mean, we've had about nine millimetres of rain so far this month. We may not be looking at too much more rain this month. We, we're essentially sort of farming in drought conditions at the moment. I've got seed sat on the ground at the moment, which is isn't germinating because there's not enough moisture for it to to uh, to sort of to start. Whereas this last winter was slightly drier, but the previous two winters were about the wettest winters that we'd had on record. So we are essentially sort of already, you know, all the projections that you've seen for some time now have been sort of forecasting periods, bouts of intense uh, rainfall. We're now in this situation where we're going from flood to drought and sort of almost flicking a switch between the two. So, so yeah, this is a situation that we're already experiencing and sort of having to try and 
time things, having to try and work things, having to try and plan how we farm to account for the fact that these are the conditions that we're going to be working in. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess um, it's probably not something that people particularly associate with farming in the UK is that those extreme periods of, of flood and drought, because we are characterised as a nation of having quite sort of mild weather year round. But it is something that I guess we are increasingly seeing around the country, particularly in areas like where you're farming at Deepdale, which does have a bit more of a unique ecosystem. Josiah, is that reflective of what you're experiencing with the other farms that you work with? Absolutely. I think uh, Nathan's experience at Deepdale is absolutely what everyone is reporting. Um, and unpredictability. So it's not that we're we're in some sort of system shift from from one state to another. We're in, we're just moving into a state of flux and uncertainty, uh, and there aren't immediate answers to that. You know, crops that worked well last year because we had you know rain in April or we didn't actually have rain in April last year, but things that work in one year do not work in the next year. And we have to have a broader basket of crops that we're working on in order to to help us mitigate that risk. And I don't think there is a straightforward or easy answer. And you're absolutely right. You know, we see the news and, and at the moment, you know, the, the, the droughts in India and Pakistan and the impact that that's having on those communities. And we think that climate change is happening somewhere else. It's not, it's happening here. We do have a sort of temperate climate, which sort of buffers that impact, but it is happening and it will increasingly affect us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, there is no kind of quick and easy answer, but I'm really interested to know from your experiences how you think that food systems can become a bit more resilient to climate change and what steps you have already seen being taken or what steps you think might be planned. I think we've been we've been driven to no small extent by sort of the necessity of trying to address issues on the farm that were right in front of us. And if we're lucky, that has put us in a position where we have better engineered the farm to cope with with uh, these fluctuating and unpredictable conditions in the future. So there's a, there's a text which a lot of people who talk about regenerative farming practices, for example, will refer to, which is um, Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. What Gay Brown refers to in that is essentially, you know, he was in a situation where he was losing money hand over fist, crop failures, basically everything going wrong on the farm. And this was something which pushed him into, into adopting different working practices. And it's very much a similar situation to us. We were essentially, when I started back in the beginning of 2020, we were in this perfect storm of circumstances, which essentially saw us losing our livelihood off the fields, because that's what the soil is. Yep. You know, no soil, no living. Yeah, literally um, running away with the water. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the first priority was actually to stop that process from happening. Now, it so happens that off the back of those sort of defensive earthworks, you know, this, this hard landscaping that we were having to do, that off the back of that, we got talking with the water-sensitive farming team at Norfolk Rivers Trust, who gave us recommendations for things like putting in cover crops and planting hedgerows to stabilise buns and doing various other bits and pieces. And off the back of this, putting cover crops in essentially to keep a lid on carrot fields, which we knew would then be problematic because they had been, the organic matter was depleted and they had no structure and they'd been turned over. We essentially find ourselves discovering all of these other benefits that cover crops were offering us, such as natural fertility buildings, such as providing a, just a phenomenal resource for pollinators. And also with the cover crops, um, 
you know, there's there's a point here which is that uh, which Josiah touched upon, which is that just doing the one thing is not going to work in this situation. Just having a monoculture of one thing. We we had a field that had 34 hectares of potatoes in it, the largest field on the farm. If that crop failed for whatever reason, that's an absolute disaster. The way that we've redesigned the farm now to to try and sort of balance managing the farm for biodiversity with actually having crop diversity is that within that field now we have about six different types of crops whether that's environmental crops beetle banks pollinator strips wild bird seed spring wheat clover lay and what we're finding finding now is that if one thing isn't thriving at one point in the year or you know through the year something else is going to be and you know we can hopefully see a return even if it is at the moment just a return for environmental goods that we're being paid for and we're having to find that we're sort of spreading our bets and this is what you're seeing a lot of farms doing now is this necessity to try and find what works on your farm and try and find what works in these fluctuating and unpredictable conditions means that you're seeing diversity coming back into the farm, whether that's diversity of species and cover crops or whether that's diversity, you know, greater diversity in crop rotations. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you've mentioned quite a few different um, methods there, like cover crops and hedgerows and beetle banks and so on. Josiah, with the, the farms that you're working with, are there any other um, methods that you're seeing that are, are being implemented to try and build in resilience? Yeah, I think I think as Nathan has said, really, the, the big message is diversity within and between crops. So looking at uh, polycropping or intercropping, growing more than one harvestable crop in the same field. So that might be wheat and beans or, or barley and peas or lentil and camelina, but also looking at what's happening across the whole farm. And, and there are things that farmers are implementing that make a huge difference. One of those would be agroforestry systems and particularly diverse agroforestry systems where you've got, you know, fruit fuel, timber, various different products coming out of the perennial woody rows. And those trees themselves are creating microclimate, they're holding moisture into the annual cropping alleys. Uh, they're providing a habitat for beneficial insects and other species that are going to come out and help manage your crops for you. They are cycling nutrients, so the deep roots of the trees can reach some of those minerals that are not accessible to the annual crops. And when their leaves fall on the alleys, they are they're supplying those crops with some of that um, that nutrition they need. And and again, that as, as Nathan has said, that thinking about the income model in a slightly different way. So you might plant a timber tree, a high value timber tree like a walnut or a cherry that you don't actually harvest for 25 or 30 years, but it, it's there in the bank and, and it's it's forming an important ecological role in helping the farm run sustainably and holding moisture into the soil and, and providing that ecosystem. So yeah, there's lots of things happening on the farm. And I think what needs to happen is regenerative farming is a brilliant model for what's happening behind the farm gate. What we need to move to is an agroecological food system where other stakeholders, customers, processors, manufacturers are supporting that change on farm. Because otherwise it's very difficult for someone like Nathan to make that shift, make those massive system changes without having some, some additional financial support. Because systems change always comes with risks and yield penalties and uncertainty and churn. And I think it's really critical that as well as the environmental payments that someone like Nathan's getting, he's getting paid for producing food in a different way as well. And that's really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that really is at the heart of what you're doing with, with Hodney Dodds. It would be really interesting to, to hear a little bit more about how you are taking those crops to market and making that successful for the farmers that you're working with. 
Yeah, so I mean, broadly, we work with sort of maybe 25 or 30 farmers in any given year, and they're growing a range of crops for us. And some, some of them will be growing things that they're very familiar with with like, like peas and beans and some are working with us to pioneer crops like quinoa or chia or lentils uh, and we have a very open set of conversations with them about the risks they're taking and how much risk they're prepared to take so for example with a new crop like lentils a farmer might say well I can commit five or six hectares to this but I, I can't really afford to lose anymore if the whole thing fails and we might work out a pricing model back to farm that reflects, say, a one year in five failure. So they're getting a slight premium in the years when they have a successful harvest to mitigate for the risk of risk of a failure. If it's a crop that the farm is very familiar with, like, for example, beans or, or peas, we might offer them a, a premium over the, the current market rate in order to reflect some of the sort of pro-environmental work they're doing. And then we communicate that to our customers. So. Um, we put their name on the packet. It sounds like a really simple thing, but for a commodity crop that is otherwise completely anonymous, it's really unusual for the farmer to see their name on a packet of peas in a shop that they have grown. And, and there's a huge kind of, um, I mean, Nathan will, will perhaps say something on this, but there's the economic reward of farming. And then there's the kind of the general feeling that you're doing something positive and good and, and a kind of um, a sense of uh, achievement and purpose and, re and the reward that comes from that being recognized is not to be undersung I think I think it's, it's really really valuable so yeah so that encourages and motivates farmers to do more change the first farm we work with directly I think in 2013-14 is an organic farm called Mark Lee in Shropshire. He'd been growing commodity peas for animal feed and there was no human consumption market for organic peas in the UK until we started working with him because the Canadians could undercut by 10 or 15 pounds a tonne and that was enough to stop the traders being interested. Right. We went to Mark and said what do these peas need to cost? Could you grow these different varieties for us and we will sell them and we'll put your name on them and I think Mark would you know readily say that it completely changed his attitude to his combinable crops. They went from being the commodity that left the farm in a 28 tonne truck that maybe wasn't even food to something that he was really proud of and put a lot of thought in. The same level of care that he might have been putting into the meat production that happens on the farm or the vegetables for a box scheme. And that's that's changed his whole approach to the farm. That's fantastic. And I think an organisation such as yourselves being able to provide that link between the end consumer, the traders and, and the farmer to help to connect the dots and, and create a viable route to market for, for products like this is, is really, really valuable. I think the middleman, the idea of the middleman is, you know, rightly vilified as someone that's taking a cut out of something that's, you know, and, and having a very negative role. But I actually think that that middle person can have a really important facilitating and enabling role in making that connection between people. Absolutely. Absolutely agreed. So to, to sort of build from that point, Nathan, I'd be really interested to find out from your perspective how you think that climate change is affecting the farm financially and how uh, taking a regenerative approach is, is helping to build in financial resilience as well as resilience against um, you know, weather patterns and so on. Well, the model for the farm has shifted where, for example, in terms of cropping, in 2019, we grew and sold around about uh, 1,500 tonnes of winter wheat. And in 2020, the crop was about 850 tonnes. And we've, uh, as of uh, last year's crop, we essentially sold about 26 tonnes of winter wheat. Um, now, that clearly doesn't stack up if you're relying on a model where you're sending feed wheat out of the door in huge quantities. 
We are in a very, very fortunate position here at Deepdale that we are on the coast road. We have a diversified tourism business, which has been established for quite some time. We've got retail. We've got diversifications that, that the, the family here have been, have been working on for a long time. And so we're in a, we're in a prime position to, to change the way that we, that we manage the farm to hopefully diversify our income sources. So recently we've been doing things like green woodworking courses and we're looking at uh, using the farm as a platform uh, from which we can provide a spaces for activities and venue hire and potentially industrial units and you know various other options. The honest answer to the question of, of commercially how farming for resilience to climate change and how this farm works in the, in the future, the honest answer is no one knows yet. And the, there's a reason for that, which is that basically the farm at the moment has an insurance policy, which is a mid-tier countryside stewardship agreement, which takes us through to 2025, which pays us to manage around about 60% of our farm for wildlife. And we're getting a, you know, we're getting a reasonable payment back from that, which um, is essentially enough to keep the lights on and pay the staff. The value of crop sales has obviously plummeted. So what we have to be doing is looking at shifting uh, the, you know, the way that we sell crop and produce crop from a model where we're selling feed wheat for cheap to one where we're producing food. And so to that end, we've taken our wheat from the farm and we've had it milled at Leathering Set Water Mill, which is about half an hour up the road, is one of about 40 remaining water mills in the country. And we can sell plain flour, basically produced from wheat from our farm through our shop. Now, this is all stuff which is much lower volume and it's also much lower input because we're in organic conversion and we've uh, completely cut out all of our artificial uh, nutrition and all of our uh, various other sort of chemicals that we've been putting on. And we hope we have to hope that we can command a premium for these things and also get ourselves to the point where we can be producing food for Hodnodod and for the wood-fired food company that come and sell pizzas on our campsites once a week that we can actually be giving, um, selling them wheat that we can put in the pizza. And we then have a story to tell, which is you're eating pizza that contains wheat that was grown a few hundred feet behind you. Yeah. But as we're looking to the future, the stewardship agreement will expire in 2025. We have at the moment um, sort of, you know, some detail developing on things like the sustainable farming incentive and other landscape scale projects being delivered through Elm. And the short answer is nobody can say with certainty how this is all going to work. But hopefully what we're doing on the farm at the moment is we're putting ourselves in the strongest possible position to have a resilient business in the future that, that is at, at the very least looking after the health of the soils and protecting the assets that we've got so that we can then face the future with a little bit more confidence. Absolutely. And Josiah, from, from your experience, whether it be the farmers that you work with or, or at Hobby Dodds with your own business model, how are you finding that working in a regenerative manner is helping to build financial resilience? I think it, it does all come back to that idea about diversity and thinking very differently about what it is that we're selling. So we don't necessarily uh, offer continuity on any particular crop. We sell out of things, which is sort of unusual for a retailer because we're growing things that fit in with the farm systems that we're working with. And sometimes they are really quite small quantities. And, I, and you know, there's telling a different story to our customers and explaining how this works and how they can directly support change on farm by buying those crops. So not all of our farms are organic, for example. We're working with farmers that are thinking about other models of change through their systems and need to, need to return a little bit of extra value to their farm 
harm and we can help them to do that i think the real challenge is is how we how we think about scale and volume and Nathan's um, doing brilliant work with leathering set and working with the, the pizza company on the farm and potentially selling into, into Hobbendot as well. But if you've got a, a thousand hectare East Anglian arable farm and you're producing a lot of cereals, you, you can't sell all those cereals at the farm gates and affecting the change on those farms is going to be extraordinarily difficult. There's no infrastructure. You know, they, they don't have the option to do what regenerative farmers are encouraged to do, which is to bring livestock back onto the farm because we don't have stock sheds or people that are experienced with handling stock or fencing or any of those kind of facilities we don't have a clear route to market for high volume so i think hobbendot is an example of how a change can happen but we need a lot more and a lot bigger change to happen really really quickly because as as nathan said a lot of the existing payments are going to be disappearing and climate change is not going to go away when that happens so we really need to be working hard and fast in order to affect a, a much wider change and get some of those bigger food manufacturers processors and retailers really engaged properly with changing in farming practice. Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on a really interesting point there about the availability of different products for the consumer, because we are as a nation used to having kind of massive supermarkets, which import foods year round from different parts of the world. So that, you know, if we want a pineapple in the middle of summer or the middle of winter or whenever it's, it's available to us. And I think that message that crops are seasonal and they do sell out and sometimes crops fail and so certain things might not be available and so on that's a really important message I think for the consumer to take on how are you finding that people are responding to that at the moment I mean the funny thing is it's not good for us not to have something to sell but actually our customers really like it you know they get really interested in it you know we say well actually we've had a really bad harvest for chickpeas which are a, a crop we're experimenting with and we feel that in the face of climate change in years to come we'll need to know how to grow these crops and we need to start learning on a very small scale and it's an opportunity for us to explain all of that you know we had real difficulty we, we used the wrong variety we we had a very dry April so they didn't grow particularly well they didn't germinate very well and that that story actually just increases their kind of understanding and empathy with the system that we're trying to create so we're not just presenting them with a with a, a sort of an empty space on the shelf it's it's much more complex than that it's a way of bringing them into the narrative and making them feel part of the process of change that's happening and we can offer them an alternative we, we haven't got any rye but we have got this other really interesting heritage cereal which might work in the same way do you want to experiment with that in your bakery yeah absolutely brilliant this is the systemic nature of this change that, that happens is, for example, for this farm, going from a commodity crop production model with, with 1500 tonnes of winter wheat going through our barn to being in a position where I would rather have a really good, clean, high quality quarter of a tonne of crop that we're in a position to sell to uh, Hobnodod is a massive change it's it is it is literally everything down to breaking away from the mentality that it's not worth growing a crop until you can grow at least 29 tons and fill a trailer but it's also actually about i've really felt this on the farm i felt like it has been a case of really starting to believe that the food we grow is food and not feed and that it's good enough for people to eat. Now we go through our red tractor inspection, just like every other farm. We also go through an organic inspection, which places certain responsibilities on us around things like sort of managing our soil health and biodiversity and various other bits and pieces. We know the processes that go into this, but there is a self-belief part of this, which is to believe that the stuff that we are growing is worth people eating. And that's quite a change to say, you know, I'm, I would eat the things that I'm growing. 
and it's a really sort of quite an odd thing because when this farm previously has been growing sort of maize that's been going off for ad or wheat has been going off for feed not knowing where that food has gone it feels much much better to know that your food potentially is actually just making an amazing yorkshire pudding um or something like that yeah. And that, that's it's a change of systems. There's the capital expenditure. There's the change of processes, but it's also the change of mindset. And then there's there is a million and one other changes to respond to. For example, when you talk about regenerative farming, or you talk about agroecological practices or organic production, Josiah and I were both at an event recently, and there's um, a potato grower at the event. He's a lovely guy, and he's grown potatoes on our farm in the past. He raised the point that we still have this responsibility to feed so many million people. And that's a fairly common thing that comes back. Well, you know, you can't scale down your production. How are we going to feed everybody? And then there is there is a there is a standard response to this, which is it is not all on farmers to be producing endless quantities of poor quality food. It is also down to supermarkets and consumers to address the huge problems we have with food waste and Absolutely. a thousand and one other changes. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Poverty is not the farmer's problem. It's a political issue. The fact that people can't afford to eat and that we need to produce cheap food is pushed back onto farmers. But actually, it's a political issue and it needs to be. It's very easy for, for, for politicians to push it back to farmers and say, well, this is your responsibility and we'll give you all the tools in order to produce cheap food. But in reality, if we want to continue feeding people, and this is the point, really, if we want to be able to feed people in perpetuity, then we need to be practicing farming in a way that allows that to happen. Yes, exactly. Because the focus on yield and the, the associated soil degradation is, is quite literally not sustainable. In a very real sense, yes. Yeah. Well, I may have just touched on it to an extent, but I'm interested to hear from both of you what you think that the biggest challenge from climate change might be that you're expecting to see in the future and how you think you might be able to build in resilience. For me at the moment, it, uh, it's felt recently like water is a, is a huge issue. It's either an overabundance of it or it's a shortage of it. It's really interesting. I actually went to Ghana about 11 years ago, spent about six months there and seeing communities that have that have literally changed the crops that they grow because they can no longer grow the crops that they were able to in certain parts of the country. So, you know, entire communities shifting to having to grow new crops. And we've got this rather interesting sort of experience now of, you know, farms in East Anglia sort of setting up vineyards because we, you know, we've actually got sort of the climatic conditions of sort of the likes of the Champagne region. There's a massive issue for us in terms of where we are on this farm. Is It will be how we either can be preparing the, the ground for, you know, do we have to, an, an organic system would, for example, um, tell us that we need to be concentrating on growing spring crops. But we've got spring crops in the ground at the moment. We've got 30 hectares of spring wheat and 30 hectares of spring barley. And they are crying out for a drink. And farmers all over the place are irrigating their cereal crops which is a relatively unusual site. For us, it's, a, it's going to be a combination of various different factors, but a lot of that is going to be driven by availability or, or excess of water. I think that's possibly going to be sort of one of the, the biggest things for us to suss out and really will demand that we ask some very serious questions about how we farm and actually what we farm here in the future. And I guess one of the biggest elements of that will be then managing water content in the soil year round through things like planting trees, hedgerows, beetle banks, etc. 
Yeah, so um, agroforestry is definitely something that we've been looking at, you know, to re reduce wind erosion, to try and produce stable uh, sort of microclimates on the farm. We've been doing hedgerow restoration, um, but also, you know, we've been looking at NDVI uh, imagery of the farm just recently, which is, you know, you can get amazing sort of, you know, free NDVI imagery throughout like one soil. And we've been seeing that by far the sort of the, the, the healthiest vegetative growth on the cropped areas of our farm are from clover lays coming into their second year. Now, you know, what is that going to be telling us about, you know, for example, what Josiah's already mentioned of whether we need to look at things like whether it's intercropping so that we're producing sort of better conditions for crops in the fields or whether we're looking at strip tilling, whether we're looking at a sort of a, you know, a permanent uh, clover mulch, all things that farmers all over the place are already trying out and using at the moment. There's, there's, there are a whole lot of sort of tools in the toolkit that we can be looking at and it will be no one single solution. No, absolutely. If nothing else, it's about working out what's right for your specific patch of land, isn't it? Yeah, Gabe Brown was interviewed by Janet Hughes, who's the head of the Future Farming uh, Scheme at DEFRA, who's been sort of instrumental in leading the sort of the evolution of new agricultural policy and deliver of, delivery of uh, the sustainable farming incentive. He previously wrote the five principles of soil health, which if anybody doesn't already know them, it's diversity, protecting the soil surface, minimizing tillage, minimizing soil disturbance, livestock integration, and maintaining living roots. And Gay Brown then acknowledged that the sixth principle of regenerative um, farming is the um, is context, which is what is going to work for you where you are. And there's, yeah. there's another part of this, which is something that Josiah has already alluded to, which is that regenerative farming as a set of practices is all very well, but an agroecological approach, which is bringing in a whole load of other considerations, is actually genuinely how you're going to develop resilience, because it's going to be about the resilience of communities, as well as just the resilience of your soil on the farm. And Josiah, any, any thoughts from you on any other kind of big challenges from climate change other than the water side of things for the UK? Yeah, I mean, there are so many really. I think focusing on one thing, it probably would be water and, um, you know, it's variability, intense rainfall events, which of course has a lot of problems in over the summers on a lot of the farms that we work with, sort of literally destroying crops. I think going beyond the farm gate, because obviously farms are intimately connected with the communities that they serve, the impact of, of, of climate change will be, you know, we'll see increased climate migration. We will see our responsibility for supplying food to the rest of the world will, will potentially increase and there'll be greater uncertainty. And our knowledge and economic power will need to be used for good in that way by supporting those communities in their, in their home countries, which um, we're not really doing at the moment, frankly. I think I think it's just uncertainty really is the is the key problem and those agroecological principles about equity and social justice are really really critical and we need to make sure that we're feeding everyone and uh, and doing that in a way that doesn't compromise people's ability to feed themselves in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you both so much. This has been really interesting. We tend to end on just asking for a, a tip or a, a, a learning that you've had from elsewhere, a piece of advice that you might like to share with our listeners. So Nathan, I'll go to go to you first. Have you got a, a little snippet that you want to share? I think it for me, it is just to remember that that with all of these practices, with any of these changes to be made, there are a thousand and one people trying different approaches. And there are people, farm, amazing farmers all over the place talking about what they're doing. 
Um, if I'd have looked at the scale of the challenge that we had on the farm, I think I, I think I think initially I sort of did find it really sort of quite daunting. But the simplest answer is just to start where you are with what you have, and even just to sort of try sticking a cover crop in where you would otherwise have had fallow ground is possibly the best sort of gateway drug to give you a sort of an incredible entry into sort of these sustainable farming practices. I mean, to, to see it as an investment in the health of the soil. At the beginning of last year, when we had incredibly heavy rainfall and we had the final carrot harvest on the farm as that, as that was taken out of our rotation, I drove down a road between fields on the farm that are sloping on both sides. And we were seeing soil loss and seeing a lot of damage um, on the side where the carrots had been harvested in January, and it was impossible to do anything to, to prevent that. On the other side of the road, we'd had a cover crop in place for about six, six, seven months, and there was absolutely nothing. And you just see, you just need to see the proof of these practices working. And the only way to see that is just to make a start. Call a seed company, tell them what your situation is, tell them what your soil type is, tell them where you have issues, and they will help you. They have incredibly knowledgeable people that will give you a good set of recommendations. So I think if it boils down to one thing for me, it's start where you are with what you have. Thank you. And Josiah? I, I second that, really. Try something new and visit other people and see what they're doing. Uh, it's incredibly powerful to see these things being, you, you can read about them, but when you go and see them happening, it can be transformative and, and you get it. Suddenly it makes sense when you see it happening. And I think, you know, for, for, for customers, for people that are eating, try something new also. There are 300,000 species of plants on this planet that are potentially edible and could be eaten by, by us. We, we rely on <clears throat> six or seven for almost all of our plant-based calories and carbohydrates and protein. And um, we, need to be, we need to be putting something different on our plate every day and getting a bit more diversity into our diets. And, uh, and it's exciting and it's fun. And there's a whole world of recipes out there that we, that we have barely dipped into in the UK. And I think, um, I think over the last 20 years, we've become a lot more adventurous. We always were the kind of laughing stock of Europe for being very conservative about our food choices, uh, particularly immediately post-war, a lot of boiled vegetables and, and bland looking meats. But in, in the last 20 years, we've become incredibly adventurous and the cuisine of North Africa and the Middle East in particular where a lot of the beans that that we grow here are exported to is really exciting and there are plant-based diets and diets that are not necessarily very heavily meat dependent because we will have to reduce our, our meat consumption in coming years uh, in India and in Central and South America that are really really exciting and uh, try something new. Well Nathan Josiah thank you so much for joining us today it's been really really interesting. Thanks Rose. Thank you, Rose. Thank you so much for joining me today for the Region Agri podcast. To learn more on what we've talked about in this episode, please find the links in the show notes. If you would like to know more about how the Region Agri initiative can help you on your regenerative journey from advisory services, monitoring of on-farm data and regenerative certification through to carbon verification, please visit regenagri.org. There you can also check out our case studies and articles and gain access to our digital hub for free insight and advice. Alternatively, follow us on Twitter at regionagri underscore CU or search for Regionagri on LinkedIn.